do what we do for our children, for our grandchildren, for the rising generation, so that they can know what we know and feel in, in our heart. Thank you so much for that prayer. Thank you so much for showing up. I know woo, the Christmas crazies are upon us. Thank you for carving out this time this evening to be together. We are on lesson number eight of the 5,000 year leak. We're going to study principles 16, 17, and 18. Uh, Moms for America, right now we're in West Palm Beach, Florida. Moms for America has their annual fundraiser every year at Mara Largo, Donald Trump's golf resort. And uh, let's see the slides, hon. So the last, this is our third year of having our annual fundraiser at Mara Largo. The first year, um, I was just about, I was on the stage, I was just about to speak, and guess who would make a surprise appearance was uh, the former President Trump. He had just come in from golfing. So I uh, gave him a little hug, and then I got off the stage, and I let him say what he needed to say, and then... Uh, and then I got back on the stage. So this was two years ago. Charlie Kirk was there. There was Donald. He had just come in from golfing President Trump. He is actually going to be here tomorrow at the event. It's a lunch, a brunch from 11 to about 1. He'll be getting a Freedom of Light award. And so that will be kind of fun. And then last year, next slide, uh, here was a group of moms. This was last year at Mar-a-Lago. Al is always so good to come with me. Al sits on the board for Moms for America. And so here we are again, we're having an evening reception at this Airbnb, they're right outside the door, but the show must go on. I mean, when you're committed to the cause, you show up anyways. And I just really have to commend you. This is such a busy month. Uh, so thank you for being here. This is the time of year with all the smells and the tastes and gatherings and the songs and so forth. So I, maybe you, uh, you've heard me say this. I'm a, a, we have, Al and I are born, I born seven children. We've had seven children together. Whenever a baby is born, we you say it's a sacred day. It's yeah. a sacred event. So imagine a, the little babe that was born in a manger over 2000 years ago and the heavenly host sang for joy, tidings of great joy to all people. It says in uh, the scriptures. Whether you're a believer or not, it was a joyous event for all of the earth, maybe those that were still in the heavens. Christmas is a time of symbols and emblems. You know, I think of the wise men. I think of the shepherds. I, I ask myself, do you ask yourself, am I being a wise woman? Am I being a wise man with, with my time, with what I'm learning, with what I talk about, with what I'm engaged in? Am I a good shepherd? Am I keeping watch over our, our flock, our children, our grandchildren, the people we have stewardship in our community and church. You know, I think it says in the scriptures that remember every good gift comes from God. And I really feel like these principles that we're studying are gifts that were struck off by the hand of God. Our founding fathers certainly believe that. And I think some of the problem is we've forgotten these principles, or we don't even remember or know them. And, and I think some of the problems that we're seeing in the country right now is because we're not adhering uh, specifically to the three principles that we're going to talk about today, how these checks and balances were disrupted when modern day amendments were passed in the 1913, uh, specifically amendments 16 and 17. And when you go and listen to the Healing of America seminar, you will understand how uh, amendments 16 and 17 have caused a real disruption there of the checks and balances that we lived under for about the first hundred years and did so well here in America. And so um, last week we discussed principles number 14 and 15. 
And those principles are that the life and liberty are only secure as long as the right to property is secure and that the highest level of prosperity occurs when there is a free market economy and a minimum of government regulations. Our founding fathers knew as they read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nation in 1776, that the greatest threat to prosperity was regulation. Remember, we talked about how it just saps your desire to work hard. You lose the incentive when the government confiscates big portions of your labor. And so uh, these two principles really kind of taught us the natural economics of the free market that Adam Smith tapped into and so did our founding fathers. So I hope everyone had a chance to, you know, you've got your little student manual here. Have you filled in the blanks? Are you keeping up? Remember, if it gets busy this month, we record the classes. You could always go back and watch a recording or make up some of the recordings over the Christmas break. We're going to take a two-week break. We will meet one more week next week on the 14th, and then we'll take a little two-week break over Christmas, and then we'll reconvene to finish the last three classes, the last or the first three weeks of January, and then we'll be finished with our 27 principles, the 5,000 year leap. So here we go, honey, I'm gonna turn it over to you for first principle 16 tonight. Great, thank you, Jelini. Thank you for that wonderful opening. All right, the 16th principle, the government should be separated into three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. So just think about, let's go back to 1787 when the constitution is being written. So there's 55, men that show up in Philadelphia. They're all from different backgrounds, but they're all well-educated in their own right as they all read out of the same books, studied history out of the same books, went to some of, a lot of them went to colleges and universities that were created by churches. So they all knew the Old and New Testament. So it was a collection of people who had the same ideals and thoughts and they came to the convention under the premise that they were going to be part of the solution and not the problem. Back in those days, they didn't have Twitter and all the social media and 24-hour news cycle. So they weren't concerned so much about what, how popular they're going to be or how many tweets and retweets that they would get. But they showed up, they closed the doors, they closed the windows, and they went into these sessions, these brainstorming sessions for four and a half months and they went after it and got after it. And, and the, the term that they wanted to use to come to an agreement was general consensus. When someone tells you that the, the constitution is a conglomerate of compromises, they don't know their history. No, these men talked things out until they reached a general consensus. There were only three compromises in the constitution. So they talked things out where when you approach a problem or an issue with a solution in mind, then you give and take. So you're like, oh, I, okay, I didn't understand. Okay, I didn't really understand that point. You made a good point. I think we can go in that direction. And so that's that's how they came up with these this this constitution. So because they were students of history, they knew that there were three different types of government throughout history. One of them is a monarchy, where there's a single powerful ruler ruling. Uh, they they thought that they received the, the calling from God and that they ruled by the power of the almighty. Then you've got the aristocracy where it's another form of government where the best families, the ones who have all the wealth and stature, they rule the nation. And then thirdly, 
was a democracy where there are decisions by the whole people where the majority rules. So the question is, how do we form a government out of these three governments that have that we've had throughout history? And I, I can't remember this conference I went to, but there was a young lady who gave a presentation and she said less than 1% of all of God's children who live on this planet, less than 1% have lived in, have lived in a government where there's maximum freedom. Because for the most part, our history has been a monarchy, an aristocracy, or a democracy. So let's talk about this Greek historian named Polybius. He lived uh, before Jesus Christ, 204 to 122, very popular in Greece and Rome, and understood this whole idea of these three different governments and really came up with the idea of a mixed constitution because he says there were merits in these three types of government. The first in the monarchy, you get a person or an individual who can direct administration of the government. They can make decisions, quick decisions, fixed responsibility without buck passing. And that, that was very, that was needed in, in times of war. Then you've got the aristocracy that represents the vested interest and in the wealth and development of the resources of the nation. So that's the merit that's associated with aristocracy. And then the last one is a democracy where you represent the interests of the masses. So the question is, how do you blend all three of those into the perfect government? Because none of these systems on their own provide equality, prosperity, justice, or domestic tranquility for the whole people. And if they were to operate without checks and balances, provided by the opposing principles, they would degenerate into this. A monarchy would degenerate into tyranny. An aristocracy would de degenerate into an oligarchy. What's the what's oligarchy? Or oligarchy is when a few people, see these fat guys up here? That's a few people making decision for all these individuals here. These are the ones that have the wealth. These are the elites. And it's so interesting, Julene, that the elites who use capitalism to get where they are and make their money now want to adopt socialism and communism for the rest of everybody else. So you've got a few people at the top making decisions for the masses, but they the reason they want socialism and communism is because it protects them. It protects them at the expense of the working class. And so that's, that's the danger of an aristocracy that would move into an oligarchy. And then you've got a democracy which opens the door to mob rule. So now Rome began to coordinate all three of these into one system during the time of Polybius. He was, he was their council. And so, but after he died, they morphed back into what they knew and that was a tyranny because they had an emperor, Julius Caesar and so forth. So let's go to the next slide here. Okay, Baron Charles de Montesquieu comes along in 1698 and he takes a lot of what Polybius came up with and brings to this concept of separation of power or a mixed constitution. So Baron Charles de Montesquieu was one of the best educated scholars in France. Charles lost his mother at the age of seven and his dad at the age of 24. However, he had a rich uncle who took care of him and allowed him to be a scholar so he didn't have to go work. And he spent 20 years doing research for this book called The Spirit of Laws, which is one of the greatest books of the, of, for the French in the 19th century. It didn't resonate with the French, of course, 
but in England, it was it was praised and it was greatly admired by the founders. And this book documented the practical possibility of government based on a separation of powers or a mixed constitution. Because we've talked about this in the beginning of our classes, the premise behind the constitution is dividing power among many so they wouldn't be concentrated in one area. So he came up with the idea of an executive, a legislature where there's an upper and lower body and the lower body represents the people. And the upper body, more of the aristocracy. And then you think, and then thirdly, an independent judiciary. And that's what we have today. And, the, and so the founders read Polybius and they liked his ideas, but Baron Charles de Montesquieu actually put him in practice and came up with these three different, different ideas. So this is what he said about avoiding concentration of power. When the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or in the same body of magistrates, there can be no liberty because apprehensions may arise lest the same monarch or Senate, the legislature, should enact tyrannical laws to execute them in a tyrannical manner. So Baron Charles de Montesquieu, we have another kid, I think that's a cool name, Baron Charles de Montesquieu. <laughs> I don't think we will be having another child, but we will be having grandchildren. <laughs> okay, so, so we can work on the kids. So we, we wanna avoid the concentration of power because Montesquieu, going back to the other side, saw that the legislature would enact the laws, the executive branch, would administer them and that the judiciary, the independent judiciary would interpret and enforce the laws. So let's talk about what's happened. Now we've got restraint versus activism. And this is, this is what's happened to our court today. So over the years, an activist court, as we have seen, has usurped power from the legislative branch or the people. They've done that in taking prayer out of schools. That was against most parents' wishes. The marriage, remember we did the marriage amendment, all these states that, that did marriage and then Supreme Court came along and said, you're all wrong. We're going to define marriage as a man between whoever wants to get married. And then they allow Obamacare to stand. So here's a quote from de Montesquieu. Again, there is not liberty if the judiciary power be not separated from the legislative and executive. Were joined with the legislative, the life and liberty of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control for the judge would then be the legislator. It was not the intent of the founders for the independent judiciary to legislate from the bench. They were supposed to measure laws by the constitution and that the voice of the people would always reign. So single executive. There were two councils, as, you, as we talked about, there were students of history. They knew the two councils in Rome and the 30 tyrants of Greece, the executives in Greece, all ended in chaos. Montesquieu said that this responsibility should be concentrated in a single strong executive who can make decisions quickly, but with fixed responsibility. This was hotly debated in the Constitutional Convention. In fact, they voted 60 different times on how to elect a president. So Edmund Randolph from Virginia, his idea was we need three presidents, one for the northern states, one for the middle states, and one for the southern states. James Wilson from Pennsylvania said, wait a minute, don't you remember the two councils of Rome or the 30 tyrants of Greece? No, we need one president with fixed responsibility so there's no buck passing. And Edmund Randolph goes, no, that, that, that's, that's reasonable, James. I think that makes sense because you came with facts you came with history 
And now because I'm approaching this with an open mind, I can change my mind throughout the process. Oh, Julie, back to you. Okay. Divine science of good government. So this is John Adams. He was our second president of the United States. He really was the first among our founding fathers to capture the vision of the separation of power of Montesquieu and, and setting up kind of a self-repairing national government. And, um, and, and that's what occurs under the separation doctrine. And, I'll, and we'll talk about what that means. So he looked upon John Adams, he looked upon politics as a divine science, and he really devoted his whole life to the study of it. And during the Revolutionary War, he actually wrote to his little wife, Abigail, he had such a beautiful love affair, he and Abigail. And he wrote, he wrote in this letter that the science of government is my duty to study more than any other sciences, the art of legislation and administration and negotiation. And then he goes on to say, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, agriculture, in order to give their children a right to study painting and poetry and music and architecture and statuary and tapestries and porcelain. I think, wow, what a big picture guy. He, he understood that if you lay a strong foundation in good government, then the possibilities are endless. The opportunities, the land of opportunity exists. Personally, Particularly I- Particularly if you do government right, that enables freedom and liberty so that his kids and their kids' yes. kids can go on and enjoy those fruit. Do you think fruit. do you think too many kids in the universities are studying too much poetry and statuary and not enough <laughs> yeah, good governance? So, so yeah. I, I think the pendulum has swung to, to the opposite. <laughs> we need a few more people studying good uh you know uh, legislation and right. governance. How about teaching them good government? Yeah, there you go. How about teaching it? And so, you know, it's interesting that the basic principles of a sound constitution, the separation a doctrine of, of, of branches was unpopular in America at first. And uh, Adams realized that the selling of the principle of this divine science that he felt was his life assignment and mission was not necessarily going to be a good career for a man who wanted to be a popular politician. So when he returned home from France in 1779, he was... Uh, elected to sit on um, the council to form a, a constitution for Massachusetts, where the Adams are from. And this doctrine of separation of powers was not well received. Now, this was about eight years before the national constitution was written. And it's interesting, in spite of all the opposition John Adams encountered in Massachusetts, he he almost single-handedly was able to convince, and he did, to, to get the state to adopt this constitution, a state constitution, uh, uh, based on a separation of powers. And, and this would be eight years prior to the national constitution. He that, got the last laugh, didn't he? Yeah, he sure, he sure did. So, you know, he's kind of considered a, a modern apostle of the divine science of good government that truly went unappreciated for about the first century after he died. We know, as I mentioned, he was, you know, he was the vice president of George Washington and then the second president of the United States. But after he died, he really scarcely left a ripple in American history for about a hundred years. Um, in fact, a hundred years after the founding of our country, neither Washington DC or the state of Massachusetts had erected any kind of monument 
uh, to John Adams, if you can believe that. In fact, he even suspected himself. He had a little bit of a complex because he knew. He's kind of obnoxious, though. Maybe he was. He spoke his mind. Thank goodness he did. But he felt that he, no one would remember everything that he had given his life to accomplish. And he, in fact, he would write a friend that he said, mausoleums, statutes, monuments will never be created or erected for me. Praising romances will never be written, nor flattering orations spoken to transmit me to posterity in brilliant colors. Wow. So <laughs> he had a little, little bit of a, a self-esteem complex maybe, but I wish he could see. Now, this is Al and I, two months ago, we went to um, Braintree, his home. Uh, that's his home on the left, where he and Abigail raised their children. They raised a president because John Quincy Adams, their son became, went on to become the president. And now there are all kinds of statues in Quincy. It's, it's Braintree in Quincy, Massachusetts. So just about what happened. That's right. We, we were actually lucky to get in there because there was a hurricane they were worried about that was going to come through there. And see, as you can see, zero rain. But yeah. whenever there's a threat, they close everything down. <laughs> so that go. was the only house we could get in. Yeah, we, yeah. And so that there's the president, Church of the Presidents in Quincy. And there he and Abigail are buried there. And the cemetery where John Quincy Adams is buried in the cemetery. And so you could spend the whole day now. Uh, you know, just really relishing in it. And then some of his relatives' homes are there. His um, uh, Abigail's cousin married John Hancock. Dorothy Quincy Hancock is her name. And we took a fat, that was the only house really that we could. But put that on your bucket list. Quincy, Massachusetts, home of John and Abigail Adams. You can spend the whole day touring. Come, come to our house in D.C. You can stay with us. And then you can tour D.C. and then go up and down the East Coast because everything is within, what, six, seven, sometimes two, three hours. Or if you want to go from D.C. Yeah. to Boston, it's four hours. Everything is right there. It's pretty cool. Driving is four hours? Maybe. No, it's about eight hours. It's about eight hours if you drive. <laughs> but anyways, Quincy is right next I'm to... I'm thinking New York. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, you're thinking New York City. Okay. So uh, anyways, it's a great place. And, you know, if you've ever thought in life that your efforts are going unnoticed, just know you're in good company because John Adams thought that he would never get a statue. And now there's all kinds of statutes and tributes to him in his hometown. So, you know, um, I, I, John Adams hoped that this constitution that they were going to write would um, survive at the time that they wrote the constitution, the population in the colonies was about 3 million. Mm -hmm. And he said that um, it was his aspiration to see rising in America, an empire of liberty in prospects of two or 300 million of free men without one noble or one king among them. And this really is prophecy, this quote so, so fulfilled. True. So that when people tell you that the constitution is obsolete, that was written for their time, not for their time, they don't understand. It's about division of power. It's about spreading power out. It's about protecting families from a runaway federal government. Those are the premises behind the constitution. Yes, we need to know that there's seven articles and that there's 27 amendments. Those are the nuts and bolts, the leading features of the constitution. But the premise behind is what we just what we've just yeah. been trying to highlight. That's why these twenty eight principles are so critically important. And and it has served us well because the very principles they laid the foundation with, with three million uh, citizens, are you know now we have about what three hundred and twenty million. 
And so I hope John Adams didn't feel very appreciated while he was alive, but we really have him to thank for just kind of being bullish, the bulldog to push some of these principles through. Okay, Al, I'm gonna turn it over at 17. Thank you, 17th principle, a system of checks and balances should be adopted to prevent the abuse of power. To solve problems by peaceful means was one of the primary purposes of the constitution. And James Madison said this, we sound, I sound like a broken record, but this is so critically important. The accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one or a few or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, that's the aristocracy part, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. We want to spread power without throughout, and you want to have checks and balances built in, but you want to be able to do it peacefully, without war. And, and Jolene's going to talk about some of those ways. So blending doesn't mean a usurpation of powers. So as Jolene highlighted before, the states, even though their own constitutions, their own state constitutions, adopted this all-important principle of separation of powers, they really resisted the federal government mirroring what they actually done in, in the state. So Madison actually had to write five Federalist Papers, 47 of 52, I believe, explaining the separation of powers between the three branches of government so that the states would understand it. But here we got, we have the three three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. And where we've gone awry is that we've got activist judges where the judges legislate from the bench. And that's usurping of power. That's usurping power from the legislative branch because the, the laws are supposed to be made by the people, not the judiciary. Then the executive orders, all these executive orders that presidents pass every year, they get increasingly greater in number. And that's 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 usurping power also from the executive branch and from then the from the legislative branch. And then the Congress abdicates their responsibility and gives more power to the federal government by not passing individual appropriation bills. We, when, I, when I was first lobbying in D.C., there are 13 appropriation bills. They would all do them individually. And what that allowed the Congress to do was put a check on the executive branch, because if they passed, say, a transportation appropriations bill, then they can focus specifically on that agency and defund certain areas where the executive branch wasn't behaving correctly. And so now what we've had over the last decade are these big omnibus appropriation bills where they take all 13 bills and put it in one big bill. It's 12,000 pages, nobody can read it. And they shove it down the throat of Congress and they pass it and there's all kinds of crap that's in it. Okay, so America's wall of protection, you've got a wall there. You've got the federal government on the left, the states, were supposed to protect the people, and they were supposed to protect, protect the people through their United States Senator. But that all changed, as Julianne highlighted, in 1913 when they passed the 17th Amendment because the states had the power before 1913 to appoint who their senators are going to be. So the senators were accountable to the states. They would go to Washington, D.C., come home on the weekend, get instructions and then go back and vote a certain way. And if they didn't vote a certain way, they were removed. Now you've got the 17th Amendment. And so the senators operate just like the House. How much money can we bring home? How much pork can we bring home? How do we stay in office? How do we appeal to the people? And that's where you've got a $33 trillion in debt. 
And this is all highlighted in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. So, Jolene, let's talk about the original intent of the founders. Okay, the original intent for checks and balances between these three branches. This is what our founders intended, that the first check would be the House of Representatives, House of Representatives serving as a check on the Senate because no bill or statute can become law without the approval of the Senate or the House. And same, uh, same with the Senate. The, the Senate representing state legislatures, and I'll explain that, before the passage of the 17th Amendment was a check on the House. And, and that has kind of been removed. And now the people not only vote for representatives, but vote for uh, their senators. And no one is looking out for the states anymore, right? And so that's a that's an important check that was removed. And and do you think uh, those legislators that you know voted for the Seventeenth Amendment just didn't understand? They the didn't history? understand it. No, they 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 didn't understand the history. And see, your your state represent your state elects your senator the first time, and then special interest keeps them in office because instead of raising money within the state, they now can raise money for special interests all across the country. They don't need the money that comes from the state because 70% of what they raise comes from outside of the state. Yeah. So then the state becomes an afterthought. Right. And so that senator is now more beholden to the donors than the actual state. And right. I think on an average, uh, it's more for the bigger states, but it's about $6 million to run. For, way more is it way that. more than it's that? It's double digits, yeah. So, you know, a lot of these senators don't have that kind of money. So they need these donors. So, you know, they're more in the the in the pockets of the donor than they are the state because they don't give an accounting to the state legislature anymore. Right. Okay, number three, a president can restrain both the House and the Senate by using his veto to send back any bill not meeting with his approval. Okay, so that is a check uh, uh, from the president on the legislative branch. The Congress, however, on the other hand, has a check on the president by being able to pass the bill over the president's veto with two thirds of each house uh, voting to override the veto. Okay, so you can see how the president can check the legislature, the legislature can override the veto and check the president. The legislature who holds, as Al mentions, the purse strings. When we say appropriations, the legislative branch determines the money. Funds, funds, you know, the programs or the ideas that come forth and the executive orders even from the president. So um, they have a check on the president through the power of discrimination in appropriating the funds for the operation of the executive branch. The president must also, the House or the legislative legislature has a check on the president because they have to approve uh, his cabinet choices. There's 15 uh, secretaries in a president's cabinet, and they have to go through a Senate confirmation. The president also must have the approval of the Senate before he enters into any treaties with a foreign nation. So it has to go through the Senate, and 66 senators, two-thirds of the Senate, has to approve that treaty. Um, what's the, is it an executive treaty where they can he can, kind of like an executive order. He can bypass the the Senate confirmation of the treaty. Yeah, it's actually an executive agreement. Is that what it's called? Executive sure order, executive agreement. Yeah, I think that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. 
But and, it's unconstitutional. And it is unconstitutional because it, it bypasses the check. You can't be cutting side deals with foreign governments. And and we've seen presidents do that in the past. You know, what one said when the election is over, I'll have more leeway to... More flexibility, yeah, right? Yeah, we won't incriminate who said that. Okay, we have a little problem, though. And Thomas Jefferson and the founders talk specifically. They didn't feel like they potentially had enough checks on the judiciary. Yeah. And we're seeing that because Al talked about what the judiciary has done in the last century has begun to make law from the bench, judicial legislation, all right, uh, legalizing abortion, legalizing same-sex same marriage, that kind of thing. So the judiciary, let's go back and forth what the ju judiciary can check and what the, the two other branches can check on the judiciary. The ju judiciary has, <laughs> uh, we're, we're hearing some music and coughing outside our door here. I hope you did not hear that. The judiciary has a check on judiciary one more time. Judiciary. Judiciary has a check on the legislature through its authority to review all laws and determine their constitutionality. Now this has become a real problem throughout history. When the 14th Amendment, and you'll learn about that 14th Amendment in the Healing of America seminars, when that was passed during the Civil War time, it was basically to give black citizens the same natural rights as a, a white citizen. But what the 14th Amendment has evolved into is the federal government going into a state, declaring their laws and their amendments um, unconstitutional and overriding the people, the voice of the people in that state. And so uh, I would say they've abused that check, haven't they? And, and hence, uh, in um 2013 we got a, a national uh, same-sex marriage and they overrode many states marriage amendments and and so that's an over aggressive court that's judicial legislation that's a check gone wrong um the congress however on the other hand has restraining power over the judiciary as a check by having constitutional authority to restrict the extent of the jurisdiction that uh, appellate or district courts have, but not necessarily the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Supreme Court has a national jurisdiction, and that's where we've gotten into some trouble. Congress also has the power as a check against the judiciary to impeach any of the judges who are guilty of treason, high crimes, or misdemeanors, and we have never seen a, a justice be impeached by the legislative branch. So that is a check that we've never seen enacted. I think there have been maybe throughout history one or two lower level uh, judges that were uh, nothing, in, at, the nothing at the Supreme Court. Okay. Congress can also initiate amendments to the Constitution uh, uh, with three fourths of the states um, approving it. And that can affect, seriously affect the operation of both the executive and the judicial branches. If those two branches know that Congress can band together and put forth maybe a judicial um, amendment that would, you, you know, put further restrictions on the courts so the courts won't misbehave kind of thing. And we talk about this in the Healing of America seminar, seminar number four, uh, what we need a few amendments to bring in to balance some of the executive branch and the judicial branch that has abused some of their checks. And uh, lastly, let's just go to the last one. Look, the biggest check is the people. The people voting every two years for a congressman, four years for a president, and six years for a senator. 
look, if you don't like what's going on, you vote them out. You vote the president out. You vote the, you know, your senator or congressman out. So George Washington, in his farewell address, talked about the importance of preserving this that we've just gone through, preserving the founder system. And, uh, you know, they, these checks and balances were devices for peaceful self-repair when a, the country would go through crisis periods. Now, in over, you know, 250 years since we've been a country, we have We've seen a series of traumatic crises in our history. I mean, we've seen presidents assassinated. We've seen, not yet, honey, we've seen presidents assassinated. We've seen unpopular wars. We've seen a, a period of 50 years when we were aborting our, our children. And some people would think January 6th was a, a national crisis, the insurrection that lasted about, what, two hours? Yeah. You know, 50% of the country thinks it was a national crisis, 50% think they were just going and seeking redress for grievances and mischief of an unfair and dishonest election. But nevertheless, you can see that really uh, the separation of power and these checks and balances were really a point of genius during the crisis that kind of built in uh, constitutional machinery to, to kind of take us through these crises. On co in contrast, Let's you know, look at scores and scores of nations throughout history who have tried to copy our constitution. Did you know our constitution is the oldest existing national constitution uh, in the world today? So many nations have tried to copy our constitution, but they didn't incorporate adequate checks and balances that we've had. And so the only remedy when, you know, crisis took over the country is the president suspends the constitution and, you know, brings in the army or the Navy or, or both uh, to stay in power, often resorting in, you know, machine guns and bombs and violence and that kind of thing. And, and, and so you can see that our constitution was really a beautiful machinery for a peaceful means of self repair when our system got out of balance and just think of Roe versus Wade you know for 50 years many people you know you know and it was a scourge to our country ungodly legislation Cicero said is a scourge to our country so we got a different set of justices in and it corrected this it overturned it and sent it back that's peaceful even though it took 50 years that doesn't feel so peaceful but Watergate is probably in our book, one of the most dramatic illustrations of the peaceful transfer of power when President Nixon was uh, found using his office to spy. So, you know, instead of bringing in the military to keep him in power, he stepped down and that trans a piece, the transfer of power was made quietly and peacefully uh, once the issue came to a point of decision. And so, you know, really the constitution with its separation of powers and its checks and, and balances really do uphold that promise in the preamble that the blessings of living in America would be domestic tranquility. And all you have to do is travel to different parts. We just met a man today who said, you try living outside of America and you will realize what a blessing it is to live here as so many nations during time of turmoil and revelation, tur revolution turned to violence. Remember two years ago when we went to Egypt, that we wanted to do some traveling during COVID, the only 
country that we could get into was a third world country because for some reason COVID, they, they didn't have COVID. yeah they didn't have COVID. The third when there's no money to be made, it's amazing how quickly they could get a handle on COVID. But the thing that was a little um, uh, uh, unease when we traveled is everywhere we went, you know, to the Great Pyramids, all throughout Egypt on the big bus, our travel company by law they have to require you hire a, a gunmen. The armed guards, a truck in front of the bus, the charter bus, and a truck with men with guns in the back. And how did you feel about that when we first? I felt safe. Did you? Oh, feel... It was a little weird. It was definitely a little odd. But see, they have lived with the history of their presidents being assassinated and uh, jihadists taking over their governments. And so it, it made me appreciative for the stability we have in our, our country. Okay, Al. All right, 18th principle. If, if you want something to stick, if you want your goals and objectives, your family goals and objectives to stick, write them down. The 18th principle, the inalienable rights of the people are most likely preserved if the principles of government are set forth in a written constitution. The Anglo-Saxons, which we've talked about, learned this the hard way, they didn't write down their laws and, their, and they didn't have a constitution. So they, when they were when they were overtaken and uh, conquered by the Normans, everything was lost. And so what set the pattern that the founders followed with their written constitution, the Magna Carta 1215, the Petition of Rights in 1628. And then we've got the, the Mayflower Compact in 1620, the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut in 1639, right them down so that they are etched in stone and on ink and paper so that you can refer back to them and you can use them to teach your posterity as opposed to handing it down and then you make yourself subject to the whims and laws of the people that's the 18th principle yeah and i think that's probably why uh god wanted his prophets and his children to, to record the prophecies right. as well in holy writ so we would stay true to that ideal and that standard of God. So I hope that you've seen tonight really the genius of the separation of powers amongst the three branches and the checks and balances of 17 of between uh, the, the three branches to prevent one branch from dominating or overreaching. And to be honest with you, the executive and the judiciary has way more power than our founders intended. And that's because of the 17th and 18th amendment and even the 14th amendment, which has caused a disruption. And we talk about in the Healing of America seminar number four, how we can heal the, the nation and get it back to you know various amendments that would correct uh, some of these egregious amendments that came along in the 1900s. And, and we also uh, can see the beauty of, of having a completely written document that contains the rule of law that protects us from a runaway government or from the human frailties or the whims of, of a leader or the emotionalism or popularity or trends of certain ideas when you have to go back to, well, what, what does the rule of law say about this law? And you can see as we veered away from the rule of law that our country hasn't done so well. God can't protect us when we uh, start instituting ungodly law. And we have seen that in the last century or so, that this ungodly law has, has weakened our families, our communities, and has been a scourge to our country. So what do we need to correct it? We need a spiritual and a, a patriarch, uh, a patriotic revival. 
You know, I mean, we can see our nation is being rocked with immorality and conflict and, and crime. And some people nowadays will say, well, we need more government intervention. That's the key to some of our problems. And we know oh, we need to vote Republicans. They're going to fix everything. Or we need to vote for the Democrats. They're going to fix everything now. No. And, and you know, what what is going to save our nation is is uh, us getting closer to our, our maker to our creator, uh, getting in alignment with his laws, getting ourselves right, and then getting our family, taking them to God and strengthening them and then continuing to learn and study these principles of freedom and liberty. You can't have, I always say, you can't have the you know, gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of God to exercise your religion according to the dictates of your own conscience and heart. If you don't have a maximum environment of freedom, the gospel of freedom and the gospel of God have to go hand in hand. And when each of us are trying to get right with our maker, our creator, and to teach our children and our posterity, and then, you know, continue to learn and then go out and do good in the community, in our churches and in our schools, that justifies the heaven to intervene and you, you know in a world of darkness that that is what we need when god sees that kind of effort when he sees this faith he begins to take broken things and he fixes them and he makes them whole he can make us whole he can make our marriages whole he can make our nation whole he can heal our nation we know god prevails in the end you know and we have a tradition in our home that for years, I would read a Christmas carol to the kids this time of year. And this year, I got tickets to the Christmas carol at the Ford's Theater in downtown Washington, D.C. We live in this area, and that's where Lincoln was shot. And I'm sure it'll be a great show by Charles Dickens. But I just always love that simple little line by Tiny Tim, who was uh, gave a little blessing at Christmas, uh, a dinner blessing. And, and his father had said, God bless us. And Tiny Tim in his prayer said, God bless us everyone meaning he didn't want anyone to be left out this young little sickly little boy the son of bob cratchit who remember bob cratchit was the underpaid clerk of ebenezer scrooge little tiny tim ultimately helped to soften the heart of uh, scrooge and i think at this christmas time when we still see so much struggling and want in the world and in our country and vision and sometimes it might be hard you know to want to be inclusive or to be grateful when we see you know so many injustices and hard things going on but I love his proclamation God bless us everyone is so powerful because I think as he was trying to bestow upon you know his little family and all that came in contact with this young man the sincerest blessings of goodwill he had a purity and unselfish spirit that really softened the heart ultimately of Scrooge and I believe you know that's what I want to pray for I have a vision board in our room and in one of my squares it's to pray that I'll have more charity and less judgment and extend more grace to others this idea of this Christ spirit is really what it is how Christ would treat uh you know um, others and and when we speak of hope and healing and the blessings of America and the blessings of the brotherhood and sisterhood that we share here in America, it softens people, don't you think, when you approach it in, in that way? And it gives light and encouragement to, to those that might be downtrodden, especially at this season of the year. So let's hope on 
Let's hold on. We know God prevails. I love that. I heard the bells on Christmas Day where it says, God doth not, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The right will, the wrong will fail. The right will prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. So that is our, our Christmas hope and testimony this evening. Thank you so much for being with us tonight.